Good evening and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Stephanie Jansky, Director of Programming and a proud member. It's October 29th and you're with a virtual City Club Forum. Over the course of just a few decades, technology has come to play a role in nearly every single aspect of our lives. Our daily tasks are increasingly controlled and organized by smartphones and apps, and our relationships, especially during this pandemic, are maintained on social media and through video chats and calls. With all this dominance comes more scrutiny on the impact of technology on our privacy, our kids and families, race and gender roles, and democracy as a whole. James Dyer, founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, is all too familiar with these issues. Since 2003, Common Sense Media has helped parents and educators navigate the digital world with their kids and students. Mr. Sire's most recent book, Which Side of History, How Technology is Reshaping Democracy and Our Lives, features a collection of essays from the country's leading writers and thinkers on how to improve approaches and policies related to technology. One of those essays is from Julie Lithcott Haynes, the former Dean of Freshman at Stanford University and author of the New York Times bestselling book, How to Raise an Adult. She's also a former City Club speaker. Her essay, What Me Worry, The Rise of Stealth Parenting, is included in the book and questions the emotional and relational costs associated with the use of technology and other surveillance mechanisms to keep our children quote unquote safe from dangers, from mistakes, and sometimes even from themselves. Today's format is a little different than what we usually do. Mr. Styro will deliver some remarks about the genesis of the book, followed by Ms. Lithcott Haynes, who will talk about her essay. Then we'll bring both of them together for a fireside chat. And finally, we'll end as we always do with your questions. If you have questions for either of our speakers, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club and we'll try and work them in. Also, I should mention, you should get a copy of this book. And if you do so, get it at Max Bax on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights. They offer a 20% discount to City Club members. If you are a member, you should check your email or the member Facebook page for the special discount code. And lastly, a quick thank you to all of the City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support these virtual forums. We couldn't do it without you. For a full list, visit cityclub.org thank you, and you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. And now it's my pleasure to welcome back to the City Club and for the first time on our virtual stage, Jim Steyer. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It is really good to be back at the City Club one of my favorite places ever to give a talk. And it's an incredibly special venue because you have such an interesting and diverse audience. And so it's an honor to be back. And the truth is the topic we're talking about today is really the impact of technology on our lives. And that's an issue that I've worked on probably for the past 20 years. But in truth, it's something that I bet everybody in the audience today is very familiar with. Because whether you're a parent, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a political leader or just whether you're an ordinary citizen, technology is everywhere in our lives. And in my day job at Common Sense Media, we do three things. We rate, educate, and advocate. So on the one hand, we provide ratings and reviews of media and technology for about 125 million annual users, which is pretty cool. Um, and we just help you navigate, as Stephanie said, the extraordinary world of media and tech that we all live under these days, and even more so during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The second thing, though, is we about 10 years ago created the field of digital literacy and digital citizenship. So most of the schools in Cleveland and Ohio and across the country are members of Common Sense Media. And we created a curriculum with colleagues of mine at Stanford and Harvard, which is basically in most of the schools in the United States, and it helps kids and teachers think about the smart, ethical, responsible use of media and technology in the classroom, which as we know during COVID-19 has turned out not just to be in the classroom at school, but your classroom at home in a world of distance learning. And finally, we're the largest kids media and kids advocacy group in the United States. So we have focused, as Stephanie mentioned originally, on issues like privacy, on the responsibility of platforms like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube on our lives, and basically tried to represent you, the consumer, and most of all, kids and families in this extraordinary 24-7 world of technology. So the genesis of my book was, the, was to say, who are basically the 50 smartest people in the United States and around the world, but really largely the United States, who have looked at the impact of technology on our lives? It's obviously everywhere in our lives, but who would write stuff that would be provocative, thoughtful, pretty, pretty much easy to read and accessible, but also could help the broader public understand how technology is shaping everything today? And by the way, I conceived of this book way before the COVID-19 pandemic, but the good news is that our publisher, Chronicle Books, allowed us to add a few pieces after COVID-19 happened because it's been such a transformational event in so many of our lives. And you're gonna hear from one of my smartest, most thoughtful colleagues, Julie Lifcott-Hames in a minute, talking about this from a unique perspective in terms of parenting and the way that we are all living our lives. There's just a little sense of why we did this book. First of all, if you look at the issue from a kids and family perspective, which is common sense media is always the first perspective we do. If you have a teenager or a kid who's 12 to 18, they're spending about eight or nine hours a day consuming technology and media, not including time spent in the classroom. So literally, they're spending more, they spending more of their time with technology and media than they are doing anything else in their lives, including sleep and way more time than they're spending with you, their parents. And as the father of four, I know that very well. So there's a big impact on kids and families, and the book tries to bring that out with some of the smartest people in the United States and around the world talking about that issue. But as we all know, we're facing perhaps the most important election of our lives. And for you guys who are voters in Ohio, perhaps one of the most important states in the United States when it comes to the presidential election, you know that it isn't just uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden that are on the ballot. It's also the impact of technology and these platforms on the ballot. Because we've seen widespread criticism, if you look back at the 2016 and 2018 elections, about the rushing, the Russian hacking of our election. You've seen the fact that platforms, again, like Facebook or YouTube or others have been criticized for amplifying messages around hate or racism or misinformation and disinformation. So as we look at this extraordinarily important election, just a handful of days away, the role of technology in our democracy has become ever more important. And there is a big question that I think we all have to ask ourselves, which is how do we hold these platforms accountable? They are not treated the same as broadcast or cable television or as radio or as print. They are basically in an unregulated environment, yet Facebook has more than 2 billion users. That's bigger than Christianity. 
And the question to me is, how are we going to manage that societally here in the United States and globally? But what kind of rules and regulations and thoughtful common sense structures are we going to put around platforms that have that much of an impact on our lives? We also look at other issues in the book, including in light of the extraordinary movement for racial justice that has emerged here in Ohio and Cleveland, but across the country over the past six months. What is the impact of technology on racial opinions and on racial harmony or disharmony? How has technology been used to both bring people together, but also separate and divide them and to, and to in some ways, amplify racist or violent or really unfortunate messages? Another incredibly important theme that we touch upon in which side of history. And, you know, the bottom line for me as a parent, as an educator, and as the head of the biggest kids media and advocacy group in the country is, how do we make this better? What can we do to ensure that the tech world that we live in delivers the results and the promises of technology and of media that we all want, not just for ourselves, but most of all for our children and for our democracy? And what are the solutions that we should be looking at from a regulatory, political, and legislative standpoint? In a world where there's basically been nothing done over the past 15 years until we passed the major privacy law in California two years ago, how are we going to rein in some of the large technology companies, which in our opinion, and in that of many of the authors in the book, is probably the single most powerful industry in the history of the United States, not just economically, but politically. So what kinds of common sense solutions are we gonna look for in a political context? But the other stuff that I think we all need to think about is how does this affect our lives, our kids' lives, our social, emotional, and cognitive development for children, but also our mental health. There's some really interesting pieces, and I'm sure Julie will touch on this, from people like the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who talk about how loneliness and isolation, this is pre-pandemic, by the way, are huge mental health issues in our society, partly because so many people spend their times in front of a screen. And now during the pandemic over the last six or seven months, we've been spending far more screen time than ever on Zoom screens or whatever platform you have and thinking about how does that affect our lives? How does it affect that our communication with our friends, our family, other people? And how do we communicate in a world where we're not spending as much time together? Technology and media are at the root of all of this. And at the end of the day, there's sort of a very basic fundamental question that I feel is incredibly important to ask. And as the head of common sense media, I think it's one that we as a society and as individuals need to answer to, which is to the big tech companies themselves, to the executives who run the most powerful and wealthy companies in the history of the United States and the world, which side of history are you going to be on? Are you here to promote democracy? Are you here to bring people together and unite people in furtherance of a common mission and positive good values and other things that we all care deeply about, even in a diverse and inclusive society like the United States of America? Or are your platforms being used to sow division, mistrust, disinformation, outright falsehoods, the undermining of institutions and norms of our democracy that we've all taken for granted for the past 100 years or more? These are profound questions. It's why 
I asked some of the most thoughtful people in the world to join in this effort. So the authors for which side of history include everybody from the actor, Sasha Baron Cohen. He's out there now with his new Borat 2 movie and also his role in the trial of Chicago 7. But he's one of the most thoughtful critics of the amplification of racist and anti-Semitic messages in the world. Or journalists like Kara Swisher, Tom Friedman, Nick Kristoff, Jenna Wortham from the New York Times, who have their own takes on the impact of technology on society. Then you have corporate leaders like Michael Bloomberg, the head of Bloomberg LP, or Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of Salesforce, or John Hennessy, who Julie and I both know as the former president of Stanford University, but he is the board chair of both Google and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, who have extraordinary impact in terms of how businesses view this issue. Then we have people, experts on child development like Madeline Levine or Cameron Kasky, who started the movement for holding gun, the gun industry accountable in March for Our Lives. We have academics from, from universities all across the United States raising issues about what does this mean for our society? How does technology shape our lives? What is the impact on your kids and my kids? <clears throat> but also on some of the most important issues we know, whether it's democracy or the way that we interact with our friends. So you have politicians, professors, journalists, all asking the basic question to the technology industry, which side of history do you want to be on? That is an incredibly important question for us as a society to answer because it not only affects each and every one of our lives here in the United States of America, but as the center of technology for the world, we have an unparalleled influence on global institutions, global democracy, and the interaction of human beings all across the planet. It's my pleasure now to introduce one of the best authors in this book, and there are a great group of folks, but one of the best authors of all happens to be my friend, Julie Lifscott-Hames, who is a remarkable person in her own right. Now, I'm going to embarrass her and tell you that I have known Julie since she was 18 years old and a freshman in my civil rights and civil liberties class in Stanford. And, you know, she's from a remarkable personal background. If you've read her best-selling books, you will know that. But it's more than that. She went from being an iconic figure on the Stanford campus. And I know that because I'm a professor at Stanford. So if you're a professor at a university, you know who the big players on campus are. And it is true that Dean Julie, as she was known, was probably more popular among the students than the president of the university, John Hennessy, and all of the other professors, myself included, because she was an iconic leader that the students related to. And then in the middle of this extraordinarily successful academic career, Julie decided to write some of the most important books in the United States about how to raise children, how to raise adults, and how to basically deal with all of the extraordinary challenges that we face today in society. And she has a fabulous piece in this book that reflects her knowledge and understanding of the impact of technology in our lives, but also on our social, emotional, and cognitive development. So I could not be more excited and more honored to introduce one of the best authors I've ever known, one of the best people I've ever known, a board member, by the way, of Common Sense Media, and also a best-selling author whose new book you're all gonna read, Julie Lithgott-Hames. 
Bless you and welcome Julie. Jim, I'm blushing. I wish my mother was on the call so she could hear that introduction. It was the most glowing introduction I've probably ever seen. So I appreciate it. I'm so grateful to you for asking me to join you and so many others in writing this book, uh, Which Side of History. It's an honor to be in it. It's a terrific book. I'm also grateful to the City Club, Stephanie and everybody uh, behind the City Club of Cleveland. It is great to be back. Uh, I was last there maybe three years ago with Bakari Kitwana talking about my last book, which is on uh, being black and biracial, growing up in white spaces. It was such an honor to be there in person at the City Club. Glad to be back. Um, I want to um, uh, let you all know that Jim has been a tremendous mentor to me. He saw me as an 18-year-old in his civil rights class when I really, frankly, couldn't see myself. I was so, by that point, um, laden with self-doubt, being a black kid, having grown up in white spaces, desperately afraid of whether I was going to succeed at Stanford, desperately afraid of whether I was going to raise my hand and be black and wrong, which feels like such a burden and is such a burden for so many of us about whom negative stereotypes are held. And Jim Steyer um, saw me in his classroom amid hundreds and and gave me, um, urged me to speak. And I did, and I continued to speak with his encouragement and support. And um, I will forever cherish the fact that this white male professor saw this black uh, kid who was bewildered and um, and didn't believe in herself. So Jim, thank you for that and for who you have been to thousands of students over the years. So I'm here in Palo Alto, California. I want to acknowledge I'm on uh, the land originally belonging to the Ramaytu Shaloni people. Um, I want to also acknowledge today, Cleveland, um, that so many of you today are hurting because today we learned via the New York Times that the Justice Department will not be indicting the officers who killed Tamir Rice. And this is a case that, of course, strikes the heart of people in Cleveland because Tamir lived in Cleveland. And I want you to know that it has struck my heart, too, in faraway California because I'm a human and because I'm a black mother and the mother of a black son. And so I just want to give a shout out to Sabode Chandra, who happens to also be a former student of Jim Steyer. Sabode has been the attorney representing Tamir Rice's family, and I know he's experiencing anguish today. The news about the Justice Department's refusal uh, to indict came via a whistleblower. So there is hope that further things will be uncovered, I know. But I just want to say, Cleveland, particularly to Black parents in Cleveland, that this is hard. Just another nail in that coffin, if you will. Just another reminder of the tremendous lack of justice we face as Black and Brown people in America. I want to acknowledge that while I'm going to share with you what my essay in this book is about, uh, which is a ways about ways in which we're harming our kids. The harm that I write of in this book, I'm t- trying to turn it the right way, the cameras are reversed. Um, the harm that I write of in this book is a very different harm than the harm we parents face as parents of black and brown children. Uh, we are trying to protect our children's very lives. The harm I'm talking about today is not as acute as that. It is more a chronic, it is related to our kids' mental health. It's a very type of different type of harm. And I just want to acknowledge that. With that, in my remaining six minutes, I'm going to tell you what this book, what my essay in this book is about. 
So first of all, I was the Dean of Freshmen at Stanford for 10 years, where I observed the rise of helicopter parenting uh, as it descended upon university campuses. This wasn't a Stanford issue. Every dean, every faculty member across the nation was starting to see the encroachment of parents onto campus, trying to handle the day-to-day stuff of life that previously college students had just handled for themselves as well as they could, learning and growing along the way, picking themselves up when they fell. That was the norm. The norm was changing. And I witnessed that on my campus. I saw overprotective parents constantly worried, where is my child? Are they okay? I saw fiercely directive parents. You will be a doctor. You will be a brain surgeon. You will be a whatever. You know, I will direct your path and, um, and maybe condition my love for you on how well you follow my plans for you. And then the concierge parent, the third type, always there to fix, handle, manage every little thing. And I saw, along with all of these behaviors, a resulting lack of agency in my students, students who seem to have parents behaving in this manner I describe like this, exhibited what I call existential impotence. They did not know of their own existence. They had to turn to their parents constantly for advice and guidance and to handle things. And my job was to care about them. And I was concerned about them. And I began writing about what I was seeing. People would say to me in response, wait a minute, isn't technology really causing this? And I would say, no, actually. And here's how I know. I wrote my first essay on the harm of overparenting for the Chicago Tribune in 2005, This was two years before the smartphone. And hey, guess what? Parents could not surveil their kids before the smartphone. Parents couldn't even text their kids before the smartphone because parents didn't know how to text when texting was 333-44777. Remember those days? Parents were not all up in their kids' business electronically at college. Um, um, uh, They weren't weren't up in their kids' business through technology until 2007 but they were up in their kids' business way before the smartphones enabled that. So technology did not cause this overparenting, but it certainly enhances and enables the propensity if the propensity is there. So lately, I've been growing increasingly concerned with what I call stealth parenting. So we have this funny term, helicopter parenting, and then that became lawnmower parenting and snowplow parenting, et cetera. What I'm labeling for the first time in having written this essay is stealth parenting. Stealth parenting is the technology-enabled surveillance of children. We're so worried, we're so protective, we're so cautious that we deploy these technologies, and I'll describe them in a sec, but I think we have to ask ourselves, is this protecting our kids or are we in effect stalking our own children? And if so, what will that do to them? Here are some examples. And these technologies, by the way, were created by tech geniuses down the road from me here in Silicon Valley, just, you know, creating technologies. Wow, let's, you know, make it possible for parents to see the grades of their children hourly or just every time they refresh the parent portal at school. Or, you know, let's make it possible to GPS track people and let's try to make that normal. We'll we'll know where our family members are at all times. We'll see their their little blue dot on an app, or let's let's encourage webcams in people's houses so we can watch people come and go even when we're not there. Some tech genius created these things without, I think, asking any psychologist, is this good for humans? Is this good for kids? And I am here to say that I'm fairly certain the answer is no. We want to keep them safe, but I'm here to ask, 
aren't we perhaps creating even greater harms than whatever it is we fear and our psyche might happen to our children if we're not watching? Here are the mental health implications we already know exist as a result of overparenting. Overparenting is correlated with higher rates of anxiety and depression. Why? Because when we are overprotective or fiercely directive or just hold their hands way too long, we are undermining the development of agency, which is the sense of I can do things. And we're undermining a kid's resilience, which is the sense of I can cope when things go wrong. We are effectively trying to live their lives for them by doing too much, and it harms their mental health. Now, my piece on the rise of stealth parenting is speculative. I'm imagining a future where psychologists will prove the harm of these technologies. When psychologists will say, you know what? When we treat children like we treat incarcerated people and people who are in a psychiatric facility, that is with 24-7, 365 surveillance of their uh, choices, their behaviors, their whereabouts, and for kids, their academic lives through the parent portals. I am certain psychologists will tell us that this further undermines their mental health and wellness. I'm here to root for the kids as a former college dean, as the author of a forthcoming book for young adults on how to be an adult called Your Turn. My work is rooting for kids and frankly, for all of us to make it unfettered by other people's encroachment into our lives. So that's why I wrote this essay. You might want to ask me what's a better path. And I'm going to tell you, we shouldn't outsource to technology the one thing that we are uniquely suited to do as humans, which is to care for other humans and be in society and relationship with other humans. Instead of letting a piece of technology tell us that our kids are okay, we're supposed to be fostering a relationship with our kids. Whoops, that's my timer. <laughs> a relationship of connectedness, of conversation. Your kid isn't safe because you can see where they are. Like I have a friend who says, oh, my kid blew curfew, but at least I know where he is. I laugh at her. I mean, she's my friend. I laugh gently, but I say, look, he's not safe because some piece of technology can tell you where he is. He's safe when he, when he can use good judgments about where to be and how to be. He's safe if he knows the right thing to do when you're not watching, okay? We've got to get our kids intrinsically motivated to care about their own choices and behaviors and safety. And intrinsic motivation is fostered through connection and, paradoxically, autonomy. They need autonomy to develop as human beings and a strong connection with us as well so they know they're loved and believed in and supported. If we don't get this right, the damage to kids is going to be enormous in terms of their mental health and all that poor mental health then leads to. They will become adults who are undermined in their mental health and their sense of self. They will though also become educators and leaders of government and industry and nonprofits. I mean, we're talking about a level of harm that I think will impact us at the level of our society and our democracy. So, Jim. I am delighted to be here with you. You have centered what's right for kids for your entire career, and you are also a parent of four. So right. let's talk about stealth parenting. I love it. You know, Julie, first of all, I'm so glad, and I sure hope he's in the audience. Subodh Chandra. I mean, this is so proud. Julie Lipcott Ames and Subodh Chandra 
How about that he is Tamir Rice's lawyer? I remember him as a sophomore at Stanford. And then in my seminar, just like you, you know how proud that makes me. I will just say that there's nothing better, other than having your own children and watching them grow up just like Julie talked about. But it's so interesting. Let me ask a question. So Julie, because what made you start writing about parenting? It's really, so I've known you as, as, you, as we've discussed since you were 18. I remember when you first got married, I know your mom and your late father, fabulous people. And, but what made you go from being this iconic dean at Stanford University to being a best-selling author? What led you, that's a huge career change that's really interesting. And now you've become an expert on this. What yeah, interesting. So since you've said that you've known me since I was 18, I will say for the folks at home, I'm 52 now. So that gives you a sense of how long Jim and I have known each other. I'm younger than that. That's, that's impossible. Yeah, but anyway. to be 53. So most of our classmates are 53. I'm just on the young end. So, um, you know, people have labeled me a parenting expert in my first book that you're alluding to, How to Raise an Adult, right. is a parenting book. But I'm not a parenting expert, not even interested in being a parenting expert. I'm a former college dean who saw harm accruing to my students. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, what's going on? Doing a lot of observation, a lot of reading, talking to people on other campuses. What the heck has changed such that students are so capable on paper and yet so seemingly incapable because their parents need to do every little thing for them. What's going on? I kind of reverse engineered the problem and dialed it back, traced it back to how kids were raised. And oh, let me be humble and say, I was um, criticizing it on my campus and yet would come to appreciate I'm doing the very same thing in my own home with my own two kids who you know well, yes, Avery, who are now 2019. So I have this like, oh shoot. You know, it's harmful. I can see the harm in other people's kids. I'm doing it to my own kids. I got very invested in unpacking the problem and in uh, writing a book to warn people still raising kids. Oh, hey, heads up. You think this is helping them? All of this careful attention? It's harming them. I have seen the future in other people's kids. I want to write a book to help those who are still raising kids. Let me ask you a question. Now, this is very personal, but I'm happy to do it in front of the audience. So you know my four kids. Yeah. So as you know, Liz and I, our fourth kid is adopted, Jesse. He's a dark-skinned African-American 16-year-old boy, right? Yeah. And it was interesting when I was listening to you talk about the app on your phone that traces the, the, where, the whereabouts of your kid, right? And by the way, to, our, to, our, to my thank, thank you, my lovely wife, whom you also know, we have not, I think, overparented our three older kids. But I will say this as the father of a young African-American male who's 16 years old, who I worry about could become the next Philando Castile or the next 16 year old version of George Floyd. I worry about Jesse in a way that I never worried about our three older kids. So in it, to an audience of people of color, right? Who live in a society, particularly with young black males who deal with issues by the way, as a parent, this has been an extraordinary challenge for me and my wife. Do you think it's normal for them to do a little more helicopter parenting than, say, for you know upper middle class white kids like the Steyer, the first three Steyer kids were like? And you you think about that in the context of your own children in Palo Alto, a largely white area, the home of Silicon Valley, as we know. I mean, how do you? That's a tricky one for me. Yeah, a hundred percent tricky. Uh, great question. Beautiful question. The first thing that I want to say in response is let's remember how we all got here. Our parents could not surveil us. 
It was not possible. <laughs> and um, we developed the skills. Thank, Thank God, by the way. And the instincts, we developed the skills and instincts necessary to ensure our own survival. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's hold that as a memory. Okay. For example, don't talk to strangers has been the mantra for over a generation now. That is not a life skill because kids are now afraid of strangers. They have not grown accustomed to like making eye contact with a stranger, being polite with a stranger, and most importantly, discerning the one creepy stranger from the vast majority of humans who are perfectly fine. Then they leave our homes and they go to college or the workplace or the military and their lives are full of, say it with me, strangers. And they're literally, some of them, afraid because they've been taught to fear strangers. So this is an example of how we've overreached, how our efforts to keep them safe have been overbroad and have really resulted in the opposite of what we intend, which is kids unable to engage out in the world. In terms of Black families, and don't we need to be more, you know, helicoptery in order to keep our kids safe? A um, couple thoughts come to mind. I would rather focus on building my children, building within my children or helping them build within themselves so much self-love and self-respect and admiration for who we are as Black people, that they go out into the world armed with that, rather than send them out into the world constantly afraid that at any moment, some wacko who hates Black people is going to harm them. Because the psychological harm that attends always being afraid of your own existence, of what could happen to you, that's big too. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I mean, yes, we have to prepare our kids for that possible reality, but not act as if it is this omnipresent force, okay? And let me add also that seeing where your kid is on, a, on an app does not mean you can be there to prevent a Philando Castile situation. Yeah. That is a problem that overparenting cannot solve unless you want to keep your kid on a leash at all times tethered to you or in your house. I mean, that is a rational response. As a black mother, I will say to you, when Trayvon Martin was murdered at 17 years of age, my own son was 12. When Tamir Rice was murdered at 12 years of age, my son was 14. All right. In response to both of those murders, I had this very real response, which is, you know what? I just need to keep my kid inside because as long as he's in my house, he's safe. And then I remembered this, Jim. I gave him life or he came through me and lives. And life is to be lived, not lived in fear not lived under anybody's constant surveillance. So I think I'm here rooting for a life well lived entails a life with some, some good deal of freedom and our parental fears about what might go wrong. You never what have to be tempered by our obligation to allow our children to live a life. I think you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely correct, but it is really interesting as the parent of a black son that you, I think about it differently than I ever thought about my other. I have no worries about our older three kids. And it's good for you to say that as a white parent. I mean, I have a black son. Here he is, right? This is Afro is now huge. Now this is his yeah. high school graduation picture, but I'm right there with you worrying about you know, my son. And yet um, just hear me that we do not want to contail their opportunities uh, for self-discovery, to explore the world because of our fears. We did not give them life in order to just sort of encase them in some kind of protective veil. Um, 
They need to be strong and smart out there and they need to get out there and live their magnificent, marvelous lives. It's so correct. And the truth is they also have to learn resilience and getting up off the mat. And they do. It's true. And it's been a really, by the way, it's a unique experience as a white parent, you know, it's really, really interesting to see. Let me ask you this. So you look at technology, basically technology is not just, it's not the issue. It's just an enabler, right? To you, it's just an enabler of stuff that, right. I grew up in New York city, right? It's so interesting. A, by the way, a New York City that is not the New York City that you, that it is today. A tough place where my brother Tom and I used to roam around at night and our parents had no idea where we are, no ability to track us after, right? When we, from the time we were probably 16 or 17 on, and we went to parts of New York that are probably safe, gentrified and safe now, but we're not then, right? But it's really interesting because the truth is that gave us skills to survive. I totally, I love the, that's, I always think that, and I think that for people from Cleveland, right? So I grew up in a tough city and I taught at Harlem, it's school in Harlem, South Bronx. I learned a lot of lessons from that one and about how to survive and how to be resilient and how to take care of yourself. Do you think kids are lacking that today? And do you think technology is a factor in that? 100% lacking that. When you look at these extraordinary spikes in mental health challenges, suffered by children before the pandemic, we have an epidemic of unwellness in children. And um, as I've said, research correlates this overparenting behavior with higher rates of anxiety and depression because the behavior is basically, I will protect you, take care of you, do everything for you, fix your mistakes. Psychologically, the kid knows I didn't do that. This is not really my own existence. I, I don't exist. That's what's going on. And um, so they do lack resilience. They do lack instincts about how to cope out there. They've never had to. When do we think they're going to learn? Childhood is supposed to be a repeated teaching, 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 teaching. Let life happen to them. Don't let them die. Don't let them drown in the ocean. Don't let them jump off a cliff. Pretty much. Otherwise, like let life teach them the things life will teach them. Why? Because they develop skills and emotional strength called resilience. So let me ask you this. I think what you're saying is so right. So correct. So right on. I was going to say this. So you wrote in some ways the piece you wrote for the book and your upcoming book also will address this. But, you know, our colleague Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, who I, who wrote about it's very interesting. But pre this is pre-COVID, which is now the major public health crisis in the United States. And we all understand that whether you're a kid or an adult or whatever, we're living through the greatest public health crisis of our lifetimes. But the other great public health crisis which predated COVID, and by the way, is gonna still be there after COVID, is the mental health issues that kids are facing. You and I have had this discussion, and we've had it with Vivek, by the way, Julie, and the other, Lori Santos from Yale, some of the smartest people in the United States who wrote pieces in this book, right? Yeah. They literally said the biggest public health, this is pre-COVID, though let's put COVID in its own unique category, which we're still dealing with, obviously. But it's the mental health issues that kids and teens are dealing with that you and I did not deal with growing yeah. up. I would say that most of our audience didn't deal with. Yeah. What's that about? Okay, so it's about the lack of agency. Let me try to put it and let me give a few metaphors. Okay. Um, we are treating kids like they're dogs on a leash where we tell them where to go. We yank them over here. We don't permit them to go over there. Um, we give them treats when they do something right. <clears throat> A dog doesn't have a whole lot of agency. The dog's on a leash. 
It's like, you know, we're trying to make them best in breed and uh, we're going to get the trophy. And another metaphor, we treat them like bonsai trees, you know, we're clipping and pruning them to resemble the perfect human we have in mind. We are the gardener. We are handling every little clipping and pruning and they become what we envisioned. We are just robbing our kids of building agency. Agency is I can do things. Resilience is its sort of counterpart. And when things go badly, I can cope. When we do too much, we are robbing them of knowing this truth about themselves. And these truths, agency, I exist, I can do things, resilience, I can cope. They get stronger and stronger the more a person sees evidence like I did that. Okay, I handled that. I survived that. Okay, keep going. Lessons learned. I'm here. Okay, that's that is what's happening, and we need more studies correlating the, uh, this sort of encroaching behavior with a lack of agency. There, there are plenty out there, and more will come. This, I'm not a psychologist, as you know, I'm a former lawyer, former university dean, but I'm confident, based on what I've read from the work of other people, that this um, undermining of agency is a huge um, driver of these mental health problems. And the solution is just back off some. Yeah. Don't try to lead your kid's life. Don't be so freaking worried all the time. Our, we as parents, our egos are so wrapped up in our kid's existence. We have these fears and worries like our children are fragile eggs. And so we treat them like fragile eggs by doing everything for them. And then, of course, they never, you know, become birds who can fly away. They're just these helpless little creatures. And we have done that to them. People say the world is scary and unsafe. And I'll say, yes, you're right. That doesn't mean infantilize your child. It means toughen them up so they can get out there and be strong and thrive. We send our kids out of these childhoods that have been so managed and surveilled and watched. They're like veal. When they're adults, they're like veal led to the slaughter because we have deprived them of having the experiences that would have made them capable of fending for themselves. We have done this to them and we must stop doing this to them. And, you know, in a, in a corollary to that, Julie, so loneliness and isolation, right? So the world of technology, right? Here we are on a Zoom screen instead of in person in, in Cleveland, where you and I have both been, and we love that. Yeah. So we're on a Zoom screen. I mean, one of the big things I worry about is sort of the loneliness and isolation for kids, but by the for adults too. This is not limited to kids, for gosh sake. Yeah. The loneliness and isolation factors that technology allows and almost encourages. Because I could sit here, you and I could both sit here today and we could watch this show or do five hours on Twitter or whatever we wanted to do, right? But we would never, ever leave where we're sitting. We would not really interact. This is not the same. Even the conversation you and I are having now, as much as I know you and love you, is very different than if you and I were sitting in the same room. So how about the loneliness and isolation factors, not just for, for kids and adults? How does that factor into the way you view all of this and the technology piece? Well, first of all, I want to say that Stephanie is asking us to move to Q&A. So I'm going to answer this. And then answer that one. And then, Stephanie, I'm sure we have good questions. When you are surveilled, when your parents are constantly checking up on your grades, yeah. before you even know them, your parent has looked and found out and is mad. You know, how'd you get a B? I thought we studied for that, right? 
when your parent is constantly checking on your grades, constantly needs to know your whereabouts, has a webcam in the house, which they can see from the airplane 35,000 feet up and can yell at you, do your homework. That is, I think, breeding a sense of loneliness. I am not trusted. I do not have a connection with my parent that is based on trust. They have to watch my every move and critique my every move. I think that makes a child withdraw and feel disconnected from the very people who are supposed to love them unconditionally. Okay. Here's a positive example. Your kid loves video games and you feel like all they do is play video games, particularly now in the pandemic. Yep. No, don't criticize that. Sit down next to them and say, Hey, you love that game so much. Do you think I could figure that game out? Is there any way you could teach me? This is what Jane McGonigal writes about in super better. Yep. You know, that that games gaming is actually good for people in a lot of ways. I mean, there can be a point where it becomes addictive, but it's not inherently problematic. And as parents, we should take an interest in what interests our kids. That helps build a connection and trust. And then we have a much greater foundation upon which to say, I'm a little worried. I want to just talk about this. Where are you going? I'd like to know more. Instead of my technology will, will report for me on what my kid is doing. I like a police state. So I think less technological surveillance will equal less of a sense of loneliness within families, greater connection between parents and kids that's actually real instead of, you know, wired. Beautifully said. Okay, Stephanie, I know we have questions. It's so fun to talk to Julie, that's all right. No, this is a great conversation. We go on. Stephanie, we could go on. Okay, let's go to the audience. We do have a lot of questions. Um, we've been listening to a wonderful conversation with Jim Steyer, founder and CEO of Common Sense Media and editor of Which Side of History? how technology is reshaping democracy. He's been talking with author Julie Lithcott-Hames, whose essay, What Me Worry, The Rise of Stealth Parenting is featured in the book. Um, we're now gonna turn to your questions. If you have a question for either speaker, you can text them to 330-541-5794, uh, or you can tweet them at the City Club and we will try and work them in. So our first question um, comes from a mom and she asks, you ask parents not to track kids, but if we don't know where our kids are all the time, we can get into trouble. Um, I'm a mom who had her son brought home by the police after 15 minutes on his own at the playground around the corner. How do you create autonomy in young people when society doesn't always accept it these days? Well, that's a terrific example. It's a horrific example also. Uh, police in a number of jurisdictions have bought into this stranger danger concept and they are now arresting parents for letting a kid play at a park or walk home from school. This is where we need a community response. We need uh, law enforcement, school leaders, mental health practitioners, parents and kids to get together around, hey, what should the rule and the norm be in our community? There are communities that have redefined, you know, the age at which a kid can be home alone. Home alone is not terrible, folks. Kids have to learn how to be home alone. Not when they're two, you know, not when they're five. But don't you want to know that your 12-year-old has been home alone? you know, so that they can feel safe and they can feel confident that they know what to do. So this is the approach I recommend this kind of let's as a community renorm, let's stop being so fear based and uh, stop arresting kids, by the way, arresting, sorry, stop arresting parents, parents who get arrested tend to be uh, working class parents, uh, parents who have no choice, but I got to let my fourth grader play in the park while I do my shift at McDonald's, there was actually a pub a well known case 
Um, and it's it's really a condemnation of working women as well. So there are a lot of class and gender issues baked yeah. into this. Like your child must be watched at all times. Come on, folks. That's just a throwback to a different era. We're better than that. You know, Stephanie, the only thing I'd say is this. One of the most interesting career experiences I ever had is I was a prosecutor, a very successful prosecutor in Oakland, California, tough neighborhood. Let me tell tough place to be a prosecutor. And I had to work with cops, right? And here I am, you know, a progressive Stanford professor, run this big advocacy group. I was a, I was a prosecutor for three years. I had to talk to cops all the time about the challenges of their job. And the one thing I will say is even when I watch horrific scenes of police mistakes and brutality, by the way, the Tamir Rice case being a horrible example of that, right? It did make me understand though, I will say this, the challenges that cops face. And, and and how we need to educate them as well. I mean, I mean that. And that doesn't mean that is zero justification for the Tamir Rice case or George Floyd, or we can go down the list. But it was a very interesting experience about how you deal with that when you're in a role that you're not prepared for and society sort of thrusts you into a role. I don't know, Jules, I don't know what you agree with that. That's, that's a really interesting, tough place for folks. And I didn't always agree with what they did, but I at least understood much better than I ever would have what what they went through. I get that. And I respect that. I want to just um, mention the organization Let Grow, letgrow.org. This is Lenore Skenazy, Danielle Mativ, Peter Gray. These are folks who are working on changing policy at the local, regional, state level around how how old does a kid need to be to walk home from school alone? You know, what about kids walking to and from the parks in their neighborhood? To the parent who's asked this question, go to letgrow.org and learn about uh, efforts underway to kind of stop the insanity of this encroachment into, frankly, parental autonomy around you know, how to raise your kids. I agree. The next question comes from Twitter. While I agree with much of what uh, Ms. Lipcott Haynes is saying about agency, I do think parents today are up against huge, and that's in all caps, forces uh, with tech in every part of our kids' lives. How do parents support kids to develop social media savvy skills that adults don't even have yet? I'm gonna turn this right over to Jim Steyer to answer. (laughs) I was gonna say, use common sense. That was my simple answer, use common sense. But that's why we started the organization. By the way, it's a great, thank you, Julie. It's a great question though. I will tell you, I mean, I actually am so proud because it's really about my colleagues over the past 15 years who built this hugely successful organization, but I actually think common sense is sort of the answer. And and the funny thing is, no matter what the technology is, no matter how we've developed, no matter what the new platform is today, a lot of this is basic common sense. And if you listen to what Julie was saying earlier, I really thought about it. These are sort of basic maxims of parenting and child development that have been true since Julie was a kid, since I was a kid, Stephanie, since you were a kid five years ago. Anyway, um, but the truth is, a lot of it is just basic common sense. And I do think that there's this incredible, I learned so much of this from Julie, this incredible overprotectiveness. And as I said, that's why I made the point about growing up in New York. I grew in a really tough city where my parents basically let me roam around from the time I was about 12. And I had to figure out how to survive in that world. Even though I lived in a nice part of New York, I went all over the city and I do think that there is a lot of common sense that is involved in this, but it's, but it's also 
it's it's also not relying on technology or anything else. It's actually trusting your children. And I think it's a, tr a sense of trust that's so important. And by the way, including when they mess up, including when they make mistakes. The challenge though, I will say this, if you are a low income family of color is when your kid makes a mistake, that's very different when your name is Steyer and you're a white boy who looks like me because I didn't have to suffer the consequences when I was 15 or 16 and made mistakes like that, that a kid who there but for the grace of God go I might've. So it's a really interesting, it's a great question, but I actually think common sense is at the bottom yeah. of most things. I agree with all that. And I just want to add one thing, which is um, there's a great film coming out in weeks called Chasing Childhood. It's a documentary set in New York around these very issues. And one, I get to be you know, an expert in the film, so that's why I know about it. Um, it's a terrific film. And one of the, the parent and child groups profiled is a mom uh, who's separated from her child's uh, father. And so the child uh, lives with them both. And the child asks, can I please take the subway to dad's by myself? And he's, you know, 10 or nine or 11 or something. And you see them work through this. And ultimately the child does. And you see the parent sort of deal with her own fears. Here's, here's what I want to say. You're so afraid. You're so afraid. You're so afraid. The world is not less safe today than it was when we were growing up. Violent crime against all humans is down not because of helicopter totally, totally. It, is, it is a safer environment to start with than the one most of us grew up in or many of us grew up in and if not now when if you're not willing to put your 11 year old on the subway your 12 year old you're going to wait till they're 14 we are raising people who get to age 18 and have had none of the life experiences frankly they can't even screw off the juice drink cap because someone has always done it and they lack the gross the fine motor skills and the bicep to get a juice cap off. This is an example of when we continue to do for them, they can't do for themselves. And then one day we're dead and gone and our children are completely helpless. Wow. Okay, well, the next uh, question says, I feel that parents want to guarantee slash control of outcome on the quote unquote investment in raising a child. Um, how can adults become more comfortable with the inherent variables of being alive and being human? And I guess as a follow up, how did parents get to a point where the outcome of feeling and getting a good out of a good outcome your investment became a mantra? Like, I don't know if you know when did that even start or, or has it always been the case? And this is just new. I mean, okay, first of all, parents used to have 12 kids, 10 kids, eight kids. Now we have one or two, you know, they're more precious. We might've taken, in terms of quantity, uh, we might've put a lot of effort into conceiving them and we watched them from the moment they were embryos. So how are we not gonna watch them when they're 12 year olds, right? So I get that. There is some, that that has definitely changed and shaped this, but children are not an investment. They are not stocks in the stock market that you're gonna sell off because they're underperforming. Let's <laughs> Stop that rhetoric now. It is offensive. In order to raise children, I have a little visual here. In order to raise children to be, actually, I think it's going to be backwards because of the way the video works. Dang it. Is this backwards? Is this backwards, Stephanie? No, it works, Julie. It works for me. Okay, the arc of becoming a human. Do you see this tiny human here, the infant who becomes a grown up? This is the arc of adulthood. Sorry, it's it's hard for me to figure out how to hold it. Okay, they need agency, resilience, and character in order to become this healthy, happy, freestanding person. 
That's what we're supposed to be focused on, not return on your investment. Or let me put it differently. You want a return on investment? You need to help your kid instill agency, resilience, and good character. Okay? You do that by letting your child make decisions, make choices, have autonomy over much of their lives, and you're there connected. Good, trusting relationship, unconditional love, asking them questions. That's how you get your kid to a healthy adulthood, and that will be the greatest return on your investment. Amen. I totally agree. And by the way, we know this from the Stanford perspective because we know we I'm a professor at. She was the most popular figure on campus, this incredible institution that everybody wants to get their kid into. Come on. That the kids that most of the kids who got there were not with overprotective helicopter parents. I'm not saying none of them, but the vast majority not. They had to earn it on their own. And and that is the key. So Julie is 100 percent correct. So this question is actually from a young person who wants to know how to approach uh, their parents who they feel are over-involved and uh, helicopter parents, especially in this time of remote learning where they are at home all the time um, on their computer, having access to school um, and having their parent presence. How do you start that conversation? Tell them to chill out and call me and Julie. <laughs> I actually have a, a step for the a plan for kids for this, okay. this question all the time. Um, uh, one option is, so you want to have a conversation with your kid. I have no idea how old this person is, but just recognizing it in your own brain is step one. So good for you. Okay. Step two, you want to say to your parents, hey, parents, um, I'd like to set aside some time to talk in the next couple of days. So can we find time? Uh, that's respectful of the conversation. You're not like just dumping it on the dinner table or while you're doing dishes. But it also sets your parents on their heels a bit. They'll be a little worried, and that's fine because they'll be paying more attention. You've established a time. Step three is then you say to your parents, okay, hey, parents, I want you to know that uh, I know you love me and you have raised me with terrific values. Or if you can't say I know you love me because you don't use that language in your family, whatever is the most positive thing you can say about what you know your parents feel toward you, say that. They'll be even more concerned because they're like, what is coming? Worse fears will come. You have now established a great container for this serious conversation to take place. You'll say, um, I'd love to talk about the extent to which you are involved in my homework, watching what I do all the time. I feel like I'm getting to be old enough where I've got to start being more responsible and prove to you that I can do things. So let's, can we talk about that? You basically put steps one, two, three in place to sort of set up the opportunity for this actual conversation you want to have to be successful. You can also encourage your parents to watch my TED Talk. I have a TED Talk. Go to TED.com, put my name in, and I've got a talk on the harm of overparenting. It's funny. It's only 15 minutes, and uh, that might be a nice way to sort of like, hey, parents, I saw this TED Talk. Why don't you take a look? They'll probably be thrilled that you're looking at TED Talks. And, uh, and, then, and then hopefully they'll say in any parent listening, you know, you want to say to your kid, like, okay, let's talk about why you wanted to have this conversation. And then parents, try not to be defensive. Try to listen to your kid. They're trying to foster a more loving connection with you. And they're trying to be heard and valued as a human in your home, not treated like a dog. I have nothing to add. That was an awesome. Yeah. Well, we're just about at uh, an hour now. I wanted to give either of you a chance to say anything in closing before we transition. We could probably keep talking for another hour, but unrespectful of, of your time. Um, is there anything else you'd like to end with, Jim or Julie? I'd just say you should read everything and anything Julie Lithcott-Hames has ever written, because I think it's incredibly valuable advice for parents and kids. I would say, obviously, shamelessly, use common sense. 
We are the biggest player in the United States on these issues. But I mean it, use common sense, not just in the common, in the sense of commonsense.org and the organization, but trust your gut, trust who you are. We're at this, by the way, the other thing I'd like to say is this, we're at an extraordinary moment in our country. We're facing probably the most important election in our lifetime. So whatever your political views, get out there and do something about it. If you're from Ohio, you live in one of the most important states in the United States. Whether that's fair or not, it's true. So you have a duty to vote. But the other thing I would also say is we're at an existential moment in terms of the impact of technology on our society and what role do we want to play it in our lives and in our democracy and in our norms. And so the question that we ask in the book, Julie and I and all the other authors ask is, which side of history do these folks, we're actually asking that to the tech companies, which side of history do they want to be on? But I think we all as citizens have to ask that question. And I think if we ask that question, we're far more likely to come out with a good result. And I would just like to say, I am blessed to have Julie as my friend and colleague for many years. Thank you, Julie. It was my honor to be with you. And Stephanie, we love the City Club of Cleveland. That's why Julie and I both come back. Because we'll come back again. I hear Julie has another book coming yeah. in 2021. Thank so you. I expect to see both of you here. Thank you so much. This is can a wonderful I, conversation. Can I offer my gratitude quickly to the Cleveland Club, the City Club of Cleveland and Stephanie and Jim. And my just wrap up here is technology is great in so many ways. Let's just never cede our hunger to be seen and heard and connected with as humans. Our human connections are what are form the basis of our health and our longevity. And no piece of technology is ever going to be better than human to human connection. So let's never forget that we're fundamentally human and we want to stay that way. It's a perfect way to end this. We've been listening to Jim Steyer, founder and CEO of Common Sense Media and editor of the new book, Which Side of History? How Technology is Reshaping Democracy in Our Lives. And Julie Lithcott Haynes, the best-selling author and contributor to that book. Today's forum is part of our Authors in Conversation series sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Our community partner is the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. We appreciate all of your support. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Stephanie Jansky. Thanks for joining us tonight. This forum is now adjourned.